Oh, and uh, last night's town hall meeting was doing really well. No, just kidding. <laughs> we are going to be uh, here with some great guests. I want to do quick introductions. Um, Bob, quickly talk about um, who you are, where you're from, and what are you going to talk about today uh, as you're here live in the green room? My name is Bob Rosenberg, and I was the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts, now Dunkin' Donuts, for 35 years. I wrote a book, and I'm going to talk a little bit about my career that is awesome. Martin, where are you calling from and what are you talking about? Today? I'm calling from the East Coast and uh, you know, I'm the founder and CEO of Bright Plan. I've been a long time executive in Silicon Valley and uh, you know, our mission in life is really to make financial success attainable for everyone. So I appreciate being part of the conversation. That's excellent. And Fancy, where are you calling from? What are you talking about? Yes, uh, call from the famous Laguna Beach, California, and I would be my pleasure to speak about disrupting the software industry. Right, cool. If, you're, if, you're, if you don't know who you are, I'm Ray Wong. I'm joined by my awesome co-host, co-founder of Disrupt TV, Va Afshar, and of course, our excellent producer, L. We're about to start the show, and definitely those of you who are following, please follow hashtag Disrupt TV and at Disrupt TV Show, and for those of you who know, uh, we are sponsored by Robots and Pencils. So let's start the show. All right. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Val Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, Regular contributor to Fox Business, Bloomberg, Yahoo Finance. I see him on TV just about every day. And in my humble opinion, he's one of the top follows uh, futurists on Twitter at RWAG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thank you. i here with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar. As you know, he's the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, keynote speaker, inspirational innovation uh, expert. People follow him to be motivated and, of course, see what's next in the future. Um, he's also an author himself and, more importantly, my awesome co-host and friend. But it's not about us. It's about Fridays. And Fridays is about Disrupt TV and awesome guests. Who do we have today, Vala? It's our privilege to uh, kick off the show with a true disruptor, Fazi CEO of Corrent Technologies. As a technology visionary, inventor, innovator, and entrepreneur, Fazi was humbled to be the recipient of the 2019 Cody Lifetime Achievement Award. And this is a recognition that's bestowed on folks like Steve Jobs, uh, Steve Wozniak, <laughs> Bill Gates, <laughs> you know. You know, other, other, other disruptors. Why are we know. on the show? <laughs> Why are we on the show? Uh, and, uh, for their significant long-term contributions, a career worth of contribution to the software industry. As a Silicon Valley veteran, Fazy uh, has had the privilege of giving uh, talks at Harvard and Wharton, Stanford, Alzac, UCI, and other major industry events around the globe including a popular keynote inspiring a culture of 10x innovation and entrepreneurship within the global corporation and also democratizing SaaS. What a fascinating topic, democratizing SaaS. The chronicles of entrepreneurial journey uh, to disrupt the software industry. Uh, he has been serving as CEO of Corrent, a cloud migration and modernization leader named among top 10 most disruptive private companies by Insight Success. He's a great follow on Twitter, at F-E-Y-Z-I-F. Welcome, Faisy, to Disrupt TV. Yes, it's such a pleasure to be on your show. I've been a fan of your show. I have really benefited from listening to your interviews, and it's really an honor to be here today with you guys. Thank you, sir. You know, I am so honored to have on the show. You were actually one of the early cloud pioneers. You've been a successful software inventor, business model innovator, and more importantly, entrepreneur. Um, I remember like in the 90s, late 90s, I the job I wanted to get to, to was Jetcracker. Um, this was the <laughs> early cloud pass before anything else. I was a product manager at Oracle, and I was like submitting resumes uh, over there. I had a good friend, then Alan Tan, who was over there, a bunch of other folks that were popping in, and Jetcracker was the hot place. Um, talk more about this. Like You've been in the Valley for so long. You were at HP as well, uh, and some other, you know, I mean, some other notable companies like this. Uh, tell us how you got started. So uh, I, uh, when I was eight years old, the second book I read in my life was about the solar system, and I fell in love with uh, with uh, 
the whole solar idea. It opened up my mind to be a visionary and have an expansive mindset, see the big picture before I want to see the smaller picture, but also planted the seed uh, to see how we can harvest the solar energy. And then when I was in the fifth grade, read one of my dad's technical uh, magazines about solar energy. And uh, so I fell in love with the topic. So when I got to UT Austin, I graduated from Norman High, Oklahoma, got to UT Austin, which I really loved. Uh, and I said, I want to become a solar engineer. I said, sorry, we don't have one. Go to Arizona or somewhere else. I said, no, I like UT Austin. I like the Sixth Street party life and the academic life. All these Nobel Prize winners, like walking on campus with Dr. Wheeler, uh, you know, Nobel Prize in physics, Dystroph, computer science. I like to be here. It, it satisfies both the academic and the social. But I want to become a solar engineer. So I got into this fight with the Dean of Engineering at UT Austin, very powerful person uh, as a 17-year-old. So I was famous, better say infamous. Uh, <laughs> bottom line, they helped me design a solar engineering program and I was the first to graduate from it. There was one problem. The problem was the year I graduated, the federal government changed. They say elections have consequences. And new government killed all the solar energy incentives. So the day I graduated, I was out of a job. A friend of mine said, look, I'm, I'm going for my master's. He and Michael Dell were studying electrical engineering. I was mechanical for solar. And he said, I'm going to go for my master's in computer science. Would you like to join me? I said, with one condition, if you tutor me, because I, the only thing I know about computer science is programming for transfer, for God's sake. We do loops and go-tos and all that don't do those things. So he helped me, Cyrus Amami, he helped me, and he was working with Michael Dell doing stuff in the lab. Uh, so one of the classes actually attended the class so he can explain it afterwards because it completely went over my head. So I did my master's in computer science. During that time, helped Honeywell automate the first power plant in Texas. It was mechanical and computer science, digital and physical, bring, bring it together. And during the hiring freeze, uh, Hewlett Packard Cupertino hired me to come and wow. be part of a team they were building to design the first real-time database, the fastest database in the world. The goal was 10 times faster than Oracle and Sybase and Informix and so on. Because I was team member number two, we came five people. Lei Hong was there, Cynthia Givens and so on. Wow. And we invented in between 86 and 89, we invented the fastest database. There was one problem. It wasn't 10 times faster it was 1,000 times faster than Oracle. And that's when Larry Ellison tried to hire me at Oracle, and respectfully, I decided to stay. I was impressed and honored. I decided to stay with HP and do my Santa Clara MBA part-time, which was a great advice I received from the chairman of HP, who was also a Santa Clara MBA. He's the father of the laser printers and so on. And the journey continued. So I got into the software stuff and uh, ran into Steve Jobs at Stanford. He said, Faisy, you have all these schoolings I didn't have. You are in software. I'm trying to make a dent in the universe. In my world, you make a dent in your universe, which is software. And that was the beginning of disrupting myself. As our good friend Whitney Johnson's famous book, Disrupt Yourself, <laughs> says, that's one of my Bibles that go by. That was the beginning of disrupting myself that led to me leaving HP in 99, joining Jamcracker and became the first billion dollar uh, SaaS company, if we can call it SaaS, uh, the pioneer pre-SaaS ASP application service provider. And the rest is a history of constantly disrupting myself and disrupting That's industry. amazing. What a story. What a story. Follow yeah. the laser yeah, what an amazing story. Whitney Johnson was our second guest four years ago on Disrupt You. So we're big fans of uh, Whitney. And you're right, Disrupt Yourself, How to Build a Team. These are all Bibles, business, business Bibles. Uh, speaking of, you know, uh, entering software industry, uh, Forbes uh, article recently published uh, referenced 
you as a disruptor, your company, they, they highlighted corn as a disruptor in the software industry. And in your article, you have talked about, you know, the hardware industry was disrupted multiple times, including Intel Inside campaign that really democratized and changed the hardware landscape. And you said this is not time for software industry to go to disruption. And in the article, you also said to be a disruptor, to be a futurist, to be on the edge, uh, you have to be uh, uh, excellent at, at asking questions and listening carefully to the answers because you never know when someone uh, might have insight that could be useful and ultimately disrupt a market. Talk to us about that mindset that you have and talk about the work you're doing at Corrent to really pacify and disrupt the software industry. Right, right. So um, I didn't know that about myself, but some very distinct, respected people who got to know me, uh, bestseller authors, they told me that there is something about you, Faisis, that you are curious. You listen, you ask questions, probing questions, and shallow answers doesn't satisfy you. I said, wow, now that you say it, that seems right. And that's why my wife sometimes is really upset with me because I don't just <laughs> go on. <laughs> want to figure out, I really want to learn. And uh, Jam Crackers, the story was we wanted to become the aggregator of all the ASPs, uh, translated to the, today's term, aggregator, all the SaaS solutions. So like a cable company that you go to and subscribe and say, I want CNN, I want you know X, Y, and Z, and you get all your channels as single sign-on, and you turn on your TV, you have access to your channels. The idea was we become the cable TV idea for the SaaS industry, so people don't go on one at a time, subscribe to different SaaS. Uh, and that effort uh, became the first billion-dollar SaaS company when uh, our highly respected Salesforce.com was raising 20 million based on 80 million pre. We already had an offer for a billion. Um, there was one problem, and uh, there were multiple problems. One problem was we had not invented, and I use the word invent as opposed to innovate and other stuff. We had not invented an engine to transform a software into SaaS. Mm -hmm. And Salesforce, I heard from Benioff when we both were keynote speakers at the first pan-European uh, cloud and SaaS uh, conference in 2001. I said, like, this, the SaaS enablement, we use it today, we came up with that term. Adding the as-a-service capabilities to the core software, that took years to do. And that was a moment that the light went off in my head that Steve was saying, find a dent in your universe. Why not focusing on resolving this issue that Jan Packer had, uh, Mark Benioff talked about the enormity of transformation of software to software as a service. So I just decided that I want to become Mr. As a Service. We just build it as a service and plug it into any software, boom, the same replicating the same model that Intel had for the hardware industry. I mean, uh, my schoolmate, Michael Dell, would not be able to create Dell computer if Intel had not invented the processor. Maybe they were still doing research on developing the, the processor. So Intel specialized developing the engine, and then the whole PC industry flourished and proliferated. So we said, can we do the same model for the software industry? Intel inside for the software industry. Translated to today's term, democratizing SaaS. That is my hashtag, democratizing SaaS. How we democratize SaaS? We take the years of R&D for every single application away from them, and they can put it into the functionality of the application to serve. It's in education, if it's in medicine, if it's in environment, transportation. Put all that effort, all the plumbing you do, to make your software SaaS gone away. You have day one. Just make your software better because that's what people use. The same example is, imagine if every movie producer, they had to create their own Netflix in order to distribute their movie. No, Netflix is there, you build your movie, boom, it gets distributed, the payments are handled, uh, scalability is handled, quality of streaming is handled. So what Corent stands for core enterprise, the same way that Intel stands for integrated electronics. A lot of people don't know what Intel stands for. 
And uh, so we replicated, I had dinner with Paulo Zinni, the late CEO of Intel in 2005, and I just shared the idea with him. And he said, I, first of all, I love the idea, and thank you for replicating Intel because that's, we're happy that people give us the credit. And secondly, I love the idea of a core. And you cannot believe it, a few months later, Intel had the core five, core seven on the sticky notes. Could be completely coincidental, but we can be plagiarizing each other. I borrow business model, they borrow the code, but it's core enterprise, core and the core of the modern enterprise software. We build that platform that plugs in and boom, your software becomes SaaS. And that's how we are democratizing SaaS, the same way that you tell democratize the proliferation of PCs. Great, great. Oh, this is great. I mean, we're definitely seeing a shift that's going on. Um, we're seeing you know, real-world examples of this disruption popping up everywhere, um, not just in the cloud model and software. What are you seeing as well? So. Yeah, are you asking me where, what are some of the examples? Yeah, so where, where do we see some of these other real world examples of this disruption that we're talking about? Yeah, let me, let me talk right, about that you guys one of our favorite. So. Yeah. The, the, the open source industry, there are today, like 10 years ago, CIOs of Fortune 1000 were kind of hesitant to use open source solutions. Now, if they don't use open solutions, they have a disadvantage. They say, why are you using it? So, uh, I, I just did a quick research on Google. There are about 1,500 open source solutions out there wow. that the Fortune 1000 CIOs use, and there are .org organizations that support 1,500. Okay, Sugar CRM, Magento, Drupal, you just name it. Open EMR. I mean, we can. So there are only about a dozen out of 1,500 that are SaaS enabled. Why? Because it's really difficult. <laughs> SaaS enabled solution. Salesforce.com, five years, $123 million. That's one version that I heard. So massive amount. That's why Salesforce has such a phenomenal differentiation with the rest. Because they have made that massive investment. What if that investment we have done in the last almost 15 years, building the engine and everybody can plug it in. So we just SaaS enabled 4D open source solution for zero in the course of almost three months. And they're available for anyone to take it and run with it and offer it to the world. We put Tenafone on Azure Marketplace just a few weeks ago, and we can put it on AWS and so on. One of my favorite is Mifos, microfinance open source. It's a core banking solution that with the help of IBM and VMware was created 12 years ago or more, 2006 or seven. It's a free open open source core banking system. And one of the two major reasons for global extreme poverty is lack of access to banking because people don't have credit to borrow money and create businesses. The other one, of course, is lack of access to healthcare. This solution for, for 12 plus years have been there. Uh, Dell, Bill Gates Foundation, Cisco, HP, Google, they all have contributed this massive software. It has not been proliferating around the world. Why? It was not SaaS. Mm. They tried to build themselves for years and they made some progress, but not turnkey. It came to us last year, boom, within a week or so, the solution is SaaS. Now they're proliferating around the world. We just made an announcement together with Microsoft Tech Alliance, Microsoft, Corrent, and Mifos are helping people who are really impacted by the crisis, by the pandemic, to get into a bank and establish credit and so on. So it's basically, it's based on the idea of Dr. Mohammed Yunus, who got the first ever economist who got the Nobel Prize in 2006, the microfinance going global. That's one example. So crazy, clearly, I mean, you're a disruptor, you're an innovator, you're an explorer, obviously passionately curious about about uh, accessibility and affordability and democratizing technology. Can you just give advice to other young CEOs, startup founders, people that are early in their career? How should they define success? How can they try to emulate what you've been trying to do with these extraordinary relationships you have with folks from Steve Jobs to you know, HP chairman and so on and so forth? How did you get to the position that you are and how can you help others 
think the way you do so that they can put, place themselves in, in, in a successful path like yourself. Right, right. You're very kind of you to frame the question that way. Um, I have decided not to give advice to anyone, but <laughs> I, own, I own my own experience. So I'm happy to share my experience without turning it into advice because I'm not smart enough to give anyone advice. I've learned that very, very nicely. So my favorite definition of success, it's my favorite definition of success that has worked for me. It's my blueprint for success. My framework for success is the following. You are successful if you like who you are, you like what you do, and you like how you do it. It's really a dance of being and doing. Being, you like who you are, the being, and you like what you do. It's aligned with who you are. So the work and your personality are aligned. That's where the fireworks happen. You don't want a surgeon who hates being a surgeon to do a surgery on you. You want yeah. someone who loves. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the people the talk about love, love turning the world. And that's the passion about what you do. You love what you do. You're a painter. You, the masterpieces happen when you love what you do, whether you do software, you do great podcasts like you guys are doing. So you like who you are, which is deep going inside. And aside from titles, aside from money, from degrees, just decide for yourself who you are, what's your essence, and then align your job. And one of my favorite parts is you like how you do it, which is about mastery, about becoming the best in something that you love to do, whether it's playing golf or being a brain surgeon or being a software developer. So you like who you are, you like what you do, and you like how you do it. That's a simple framework that I live by every single day. Casey, that's awesome. That, I'm going to be tweeting that as soon as the show is over, and you're going to go viral because it's so simple but genius. That really, really Wonderful. great, great advice. Great Faze, advice. thank you so much. We're with Faze, CEO of Corrent Technologies. You can follow him at Faze F. Uh, on Twitter uh, and get some wonderful advice and of course really good perspective on life. Thank you so much for being here. Such an Thank honor. For, such an honor uh, being to in be the industry. You Thank you. Thank you sir. Terrific. Wow, wow, what a legend. <laughs> I love that. I always tweet smart people use simple language. You know, he says it's simple, but that those that that, no. that formula is so profound. Uh, He's definitely Speaking. right. So you, yeah, no, you get a good point. He's definitely right. And uh, I want to also thank our sponsor as well, Robots and Pencils, is before we uh, start our second segment. And But more importantly, if you know Robots and Pencils, they are the ones that are actually doing awesome mobile design, awesome design, uh, especially not just on mobile, but also customer experiences. And uh, definitely check them out. So who do we have next? Ray, you and I are the luckiest people because we get to spend time with some of the best and brightest CEOs in the world. And this is no exception. Our guest is Martin DeBeer, founder CEO of BrightPlan. Uh, uh, prior to BrightPlan, Martin was a senior vice president at Cisco Systems, um, where he had an incredible career, led multiple businesses from idea to multi-billion dollars in revenue. In his last position, he was responsible for Cisco's video and collaboration portfolio that generated over $9 billion of annual revenue. And then there was a life event, and hopefully we'll learn a little bit more about that. Uh, where Martin decided that uh, he was going to put a dent in the universe by helping people manage their future and their wealth. And uh, one of Martin's life goals is to inspire and guide people to achieve their life and financial goals. And we're going to learn about that. He's, he's, you can follow Martin on Twitter at uh, M-A-R-T-H-I-N-D-E-B-E-E-R. Welcome, Martin, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Vala and Ray. Great to be here. Hey, thank you very much. You have an awesome career going from aircraft to soft to hardware to now software to health. Uh, so when we think about what's happening out there, employee well-being, mental health, uh, what's going on post-pandemic, it's top of mind. Um, can you talk a little bit about well-being for us and how you became involved in this uh, in our current times? Yeah, you know, what Faisi was talking about earlier resonated so well with me because I also feel like I have constantly disrupted myself and you know, uh, it can be challenging when you do that, but uh, if you love to learn and love to be challenged, uh, it's very rewarding at the same time. Uh, you know, uh, uh, money is everyone's problem. 
and yet people don't always have the right access to solve that problem. Uh, well-being today is a very, very important topic across all the employers in the world as we go through this pandemic, of course. And when we say well-being, we're talking about physical well-being, mental well-being, but also financial well-being, because money is everyone's problem. You know, uh, I mentioned in the intro, you're an incredibly successful executive at one of the or the biggest uh, technology company, one of the biggest technology companies in the world. Congratulations, Cisco, just last week was named Fortune number one place to work in the world. So you're, you have an incredible career, multi-billion dollar revenue responsibility, and you know by all success measures, uh, doing well. And then you took a hard pivot to change your career, become a CEO, and really guide people towards financial well-being. Can you tell us how that happened and how difficult it was for you to make that decision because it was quite a hard pivot from where you are to where you are now. Absolutely, you know, when I joined Cisco, we had less than a billion in revenues and, you know, a couple thousand people. And I was so fortunate to work for a great company and be part of that incredible scale from going from a kind of a mid-sized company to becoming one of the most uh, significant companies in the world. And of course, you know, building the information superhighway and the internet as a part of that, being just being a part of that, we wouldn't be talking this way today if it wasn't. <laughs> so it's just amazing uh, what I've experienced there. And I've learned so much in the process, you know, working for John Chambers, working for people like Charlie Giancarlo has taught me so much and I will be eternally grateful to them. You know, um, one of the key culture uh, uh, aspects of Cisco is in fact that Cisco cares deeply about their family, their people. And in my uh, case, you know, uh, as you mentioned, I feel like I've had a full career working at Cisco for 20 years because I've had five different roles over those 20 years. Uh, and that's why I stayed there so long, frankly, because Cisco was able to give me that opportunity to take on new and very different things. And they take, they took as much risk on me as you know I took on Cisco when when I when I initially joined, but. At the same time, you know, uh, sometimes life throws you a curveball. And in my mm. case, we had a family health uh, situation that uh, uh, appeared. Uh, fortunately, we're through that now and the family is healthy. But at the same time, I realized that my dear wife uh, of 35 years needed my help during that time. And I went to John and asked him and he gracefully agreed to let me step away from my role so I can be with her during that time. Um, but it also gave me the opportunity to assess, uh, you know, as we were working through that, several things. The one thing that I became acutely aware of is how interconnected health and finances are. You know, often when you have financial stress, it leads to health problems. If you have health issues, it can lead to financial stress. And the research showed that in abundance. At the same time, I had an opportunity to start asking really tough questions of my private bank that... I thought I was really well taken care of. You know, I'm a senior executive. I thought, you know, I, I, I got it, right? Well, I started to realize that I was not so well off in terms of my future plan as I thought I was. And the advice I was actually receiving was not really in my best interest. And I was shocked because, you know, mm -hmm. if I didn't understand that, uh, how would the average employee understand that? So that whole journey led me to a point where I decided, you know what, I'd love to go back and work for Cisco, but I really wanted to do, to take my experience and everything I have learned and apply that to something that has a greater purpose. And what greater purpose than helping potentially millions of people dealing with their number point of stress in their lives, which research have shown is their personal finances. Now, if you set out on that mission 10 years ago, it would have been a really hard problem to solve because, mm -hmm. you know, advisors typically are you know, firms that provide advice is all human in nature. Mm -hmm. But now with software and the SaaS nature of software, you can bring infinite scale to a problem if you solve it the right way once. And, and, and then you can provide a solution to, to people millions of times in a very personalized fashion. 
And that's why Bright Plan was started. Uh, and what our whole mission in life is, is to bring great fiduciary advice to everyone, regardless of net worth. That's amazing. That's no, a great point there. Oh, I was gonna say, like, you, you, you espouse this concept all the time, total financial wellness. Uh, and, and why does that need a universal approach? And more importantly, what are those four pillars? Uh, because I remember hearing you talk about this uh, sometime back. Yeah, you know, think about it for a moment. You know, even if you have a PhD, uh, you probably were never taught how to use a credit card responsibly. Uh, <laughs> it's fascinating, but nowhere no, in it's our- It's about maxing the limit, right? <laughs> I mean, nowhere in our educational system, I shouldn't say nowhere, but very rarely do we actually yes. teach people how to manage their money and how to- make the right choices in life in order to be financially successful and reach their goals. And so that is really, uh, you know, a challenge for everybody. So you can work really hard, you can be really well educated, and then you can make poor decisions or get poor advice and you live a suboptimal life. And so that we're taught is consumption, but we're not taught the other aspect of the financial management. Exactly. Every financial decision you make every day has an implication. And the biggest problem is today people have to work with a, a series of service financial uh, services providers, your bank, your insurance agent, you know, uh, I mean, your CPA. And it's so hard for the average person to connect the dots. You know, if I go out and I ask people, well, what do you what did you spend in the last year and what did you spend it on? People don't have an idea. Now, how can you plan for your future when you don't understand where your money has gone in the past year? Now, software can tell you that. And in fact, that's a big part of what we do. We analyze every transaction for you. We categorize it. We show you where your money went. We build an automated, but we build an automated budget for you. And then we can help you live more responsibly and within your means. But that also needs to be connected to your big life goals. How do you get out of debt? How do you send your kids to college? How do you buy a home? You know, uh, how do you save for an emergency fund? Oh, yeah. And of course, how do you plan for retirement? Right. But it's all those things between now and retirement that will determine whether you have a good retirement. And so, again, software can help connect the dots because in this cloud world we live in today, you know, you can integrate through Brightplan all of your, your entire financial life and get advice and have all those dots be connected so that you you basically through software get the optimal plan and you get guidance every day because financial wellness is not an event it is a journey mm. and that path takes you sometimes to high peaks and sometimes to low valleys you know mm. and whether you're on the high peaks or in the low valley you need help you need advice so we provide a digital coach that basically gives you a score tells you how you're doing any given day. And when you see that big headline, the market dropped a thousand points today, what does it mean to me? Well, we contextualize that. You know what it meant to your net worth. We, you will know what it meant to your life goals. And you can then get advice to say, if something went off track, here's a simple step you can take to actually go address that and get back on track. So. So that's a big part of what we do. We drive human behavior in the right direction so that people make the right choices, the right decisions, and they don't react emotionally, which, you know, money is a really emotional topic for people, but they don't react emotionally. They make wise choices along the way. Sure. Uh, well, it's certainly, uh, if you talk about peaks and valleys, uh, this has been a valley type year. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, there's a trust deficit that exists because of a number of multiple crises. Uh, you know, you obviously the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, uh, health crisis, uh, uh, economic crisis as a result of the pandemic, uh, racial inequality, misinformation, climate, you know, places burning and flooding all throughout the country. So the combination of all these challenges, stress uh, and unforeseen, certainly the pandemic, unforeseen uh, uh, situations lead to uh, companies like yourself having to, I assume, uh, tweak the wellness uh, algorithm, uh, maybe starting in February of this year with, you know, US population impacted with COVID. Can you talk a little bit about 
this real-time ingestion of all these dimensions that affect your mental and physical and financial well-being and how it's so important to have a SaaS modern company where you have contextual intelligence at the macro and micro level so you can guide your clients in, in near real-time based on the combination of things that are surrounding us. That's a great point. You know, um, and again, your finances, research have shown personal finance is the number one point of stress for employees in the workplace and for people around the world. Uh, people don't know if they're okay. They don't know if they're going to be okay. And when we get hit by events like this, you know, the stress factor goes way up and it leads to mental issues. It leads to, uh, you know, physical wellness issues and health issues. And so if you can help people contextualize what's going on in your world and around you and what that means to you, it is incredibly comforting. And so I will never forget when we were building some of the early prototypes of Brightplan, uh, you know, a big part of Brightplan is that it's integrated with your employer benefits, but it also is very personalized. So in your retirement goal, as an example, you can make very personalized assumptions. And then when the modeling is done across a, vi a variety of market conditions, you can see if you're going to be okay, even in worse market conditions. And when I showed that to my wife the first time, even though, you know, we've been very fortunate, you know, in terms of our finances, and I wasn't that worried because, you know, I deal with our finances on a daily basis. But when I showed her that graph that just showed her, even when we get to age 95 and the market did not do that well, we're going to be okay. And I'll never forget, she had this big sigh of relief saying to me, oh, now for the first time, I can see we're going to be okay you know and there's nothing like that peace of mind right i goes awesome. back to Pfizer, what he said earlier you know do you love what you do and you know do you how do you do it so in this context it's really you know um if i can understand that the decisions i have made and the plan i have is in place is, is gonna you know help me through that 30 years when i don't earn income just visually being able to see that is incredibly important. And then to your point, but we live also in a very dynamic world where things change every day. And, you know, if we're headline driven or social media, you know, uh, uh, feed driven, right? Man, does that lead to anxiety, right? Because of course, you know, there's a lot of hype in all of those channels and uh, it's often the things that are not so good that gets hyped. And so that can easily lead to a great amount of anxiety. But again, if you can contextualize it, if you can whip out Bright Plan and say, am I still okay even though all this stuff is going on? Yep, check, check, check. My goals are on track. My network didn't change that much. It may have shifted around a bit, but it didn't change that much. And I'm still okay for retirement. It, you know, it really helps tremendously. That's awesome. You know, when you share your story with uh, how you showed your wife that, you know, you guys are going to be all set up to age 95 and hopefully even more. It reminds me that, you know, true wealth is peace of mind. Uh, you know, when, when, when she recognized that we're going to be OK, even in the worst case scenario, that that peace of mind leads to a happy home and a peace of mind, happy home and freedom. That That's true wealth. So yes. I, I applaud you for what you're doing. It's amazing. Amazing. Sorry, Ray. You know, Thank and, you, and a lot of these initiatives are really important, right? Because we're thinking about how they tie back to HR and benefits. It ties back sure. to some of the other cases where people are actually looking at measuring financial wealth as a way to kind of help their citizens improve, help you know their their company, you know the, the, uh, their their well help their employees That's and right. their entire stakeholders improve, like DNI initiatives as well. And That's so right. you're seeing that pop up. Tell us about how you guys are doing that and how people are looking yeah. at it. I mean, mm -hmm. the people that are valuing you are, are typically the uh, HR benefits folks, as well as uh, other people that are looking at operationals and health safety, so. Absolutely. You know, the single biggest investment every employer makes every year is their comp and benefit budget. There is no bigger investment huge. that it's employers huge. make. It is the biggest budget in the company. It's so um, huge. Yeah. No matter what business you're in, right? For the most part, there may be exemptions, but it's very rare. And so think about it. If you can, if you can focus on making that investment yield a better return, it is really good for the business, right? 
if you can remove the largest point of stress for your employees and you can hence have a more engaged employee base an employee base that is more productive more engaged you know uh, less stressed uh, that helps the company and the bottom line at the end of the day and so that's why we show relevant to employers and when we initiate a conversation with them this resonate with them in spades they can hire better talent they retain their top talent etc uh, and so you know um, we therefore work with the employers then to to launch and roll out uh, bright plan as a free benefit to their employees um, those employees enroll and start using the bright plan we educate people we let them help them to do goals-based planning all through the mobile app uh, and our web app you know automated automatically invest for their future and also manage their entire financial life uh, through our through our app um, but at the same time you know we have access as a registered investment advisor once people link all of their accounts to a tremendous tremendous data set for every employee now we have to be incredibly responsible with that data set and again the SEC regulates us very closely we cannot do anything with that data but use it to provide great advice to the employee and so um, you know but we can show the employers an aggregated view of certain communities and demographics within their organization and so we can tell them for instance how's the dead load of you know certain populations maybe certain mm -hmm. in a dni context certain underrepresented groups um, you know, where is their pain points? What's their debt to income ratio look like? Uh, what, how close are they living to their credit card limits? We have all of that data and that's incredibly helpful. We can also show them uh, how different populations are using their benefits, you know, and are they optimized in terms of how they've enrolled for those benefits? And again, that helps employers then to not just fine tune their benefits portfolio, but also help specific populations within their employee base, you know, where they need help most. And remember, this is data employers will never get access to. Mm. And we will never share that data on an individual basis. We can't, but we can provide insights at an aggregate level that becomes incredibly instructive to the employer. And so, you know, this is, go ahead. This is so, no, no, this is really, really important. I think as companies are trying to figure out their total the total impact and total wellness of their employees. These are going to be one of those areas and being have the quantify, you know, the ability to quantify those tools and quantify some of those trends is going to be important. Uh, we are sadly out of time. We're with Martin DeBeer, founder and CEO at Bright Plan. And you can follow him at Martin, M-A-R-T-H-I-N-D-E-B-E-E-R. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. Martin, thank terrific. You. Thank you, sir. Thank well, you thank very much. And we love thank that you. background. That's awesome. Ladder. Yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> I need bright plan so I can, you know, invest in a bookshelf and rather than a stack of books that I have there. It's beautiful reading. I love it. Thank you, guys. So <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Um, uh, extraordinary. Uh, uh, okay. So this is uh, what we call the cleanup hitter spot where we have someone come in and hit a grand slam. And, uh, you know, when I'm stressed and I need relief, I go to my favorite brand <laughs> Yeah, uh, every day, every day. I'm a We're Dunkin not live Donuts. on Cheddar, just letting you guys yeah. know. <laughs> so our, our final guest today uh, is Robert Rosenberg, former CEO of Dunkin' Donuts. He's an author. Robert serves as chief executive officer of Dunkin' Donuts from 1963 to 1998. Uh, amazing. Under his leadership, the company grew from a regional family business to one of America's best known and loved brands, certainly one of my favorite brands. Uh, Robert received his MBA from Harvard Business School, and in just a, in a few weeks, he was tasked to be the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts. That's a great story there. After uh, retiring from Dunkin' Donuts, Robert taught graduate school at Babson College, served uh, many years on board uh, directors of leading food service companies, like other brands, Domino's Pizza and Sonic Restaurants. Welcome, Robert, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. It's great having you. You know, we're so happy to have you here. And, uh, you know, your latest book and your book is really around the corner to around the world. A dozen lessons learned uh, running Dunkin' Donuts. I want to know what the baker's dozen is, what I've missed. <laughs> so, uh, but jumping in real quick, how did, you, how did you do this? Like go from, you know, a small regional business 
into a multi-billion dollar franchise brand. I mean, like almost everywhere, every airport, every venue, every location. I mean, this is an incredible story. So it, it takes a few factors to be aligned. Uh, first of all, I think there has to be a general trend, sort of trends aligned in a business. In our case, it was after the Second World War, women were entering the workforce in incredible numbers. It was growing from one out of three women working to two out of three. And as a result of that, they had to replicate what they were no longer able to do in the home by buying food out of the house. And convenience and value became incredibly important. So for a company to, to be able to grow rapidly and to grow large, I think you do need to have trends heading in your right direction. I also think you have to be able to fit a need and sort of suit a, a consumer's needs better than the competition. You have to have something that's distinguishable, that's different. And in our case, it, it was basically a focus on coffee and donuts. And hmm. no, one, no one in the United States in the, in the 60s, 70s uh, made coffee at the, sort of the, the focus in, of their business. And we did. And it was a, com a commitment to make the very best product imaginable. Same thing true with our donuts. And the third thing I would say would be people. We were blessed by virtue of the fact that uh, at least my team for 20 some odd years, we were the same people that worked together, uh, toiled together, planned together, and shared a common uh, set of aspirations. Um, we, we supported and complemented each other's talents. No one individual had sort of the ability to do all things. We were very collaborative and collegial. That was the way I was thrown as a kid out of school. And it was a, a normal way for us to grow our business. So, so those were some, you had to be in the right place at the right time. <laughs> are always a role in life and in business. You, know, you have to be able to really provide a product or service that in some ways is better than other people's, which is a continuing task. If everything changes all the time, talk about disruptive, <laughs> excuse me, the consumer and the competition are always changing and you have to change along with them. And then the most important part, or at least the part that's that's an essential element, is you really have to have great people. And I was blessed by a phenomenal team. Robert, you were CEO for 35 years, three plus decades. Uh, I remember time to make the donut. I remember growing up and just loving the, you know, I mean, you know, my family was blue collar, Boston based, just, you know, getting up early in the morning, making all the fresh donuts and having that amazing coffee taste. And, you know, my, you know, I, I, I just, it's just, I, I, it's, it was part of my, it's, it's part of my, um, my, my, my growing up and my experiences. But I think about when you were CEO for 35 years, you must have faced multiple crises, uh, you know, and challenges again, growing a family company to, 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 to the, to the, to the, you know, the number one coffee donut provider in certainly Northeast and, and, and beyond. What are some of the lessons you learned with such an incredibly long tenure that you think would be applicable to entrepreneurs today who are starting with their family business, trying to compete and grow and stay relevant? Oh boy, that covers a whole <laughs> of subject matters. I, first of all, as a family business, I would say it's a terrific opportunity for a young person to be able to come out of school. In my case, I sort of virtually grew up uh, figuratively over the store. I worked on all kinds of jobs. I learned my trade. I went to hotel school, went into the army, came out, worked for the company, went into business school. I never expected to be tapped by a 47-year-old healthy dad to take over the family business, which was uh, a, not called Dunkin' Donuts, by the way. The business I took over was called Universal Food System. It was lots of little businesses, one of which was what I call a diamond in the rough that we actually polished up, focused, and within five years, we went from 100,000 pre-tax profit to almost $800,000 in pre-tax profit. Third company to go public after McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Duncan was third in 68. And, and I, basically, we had to change the strategy of the company. So in a family business, one of the, one of the, the, the problems, the opportunity is you, you get this opportunity at a young age that heretofore wouldn't be available to you. You're going to be very lucky, born in the right place. Luckily, I was. Uh, my father picked the right industry. That was another bit of luck. But what I inherited, quite truthfully, was a mess. And and the, there I happened to benefit by my education in business school to understand that a business, a young business, a new business, 
could not only starve to death by virtue of not having sufficient resources of people and money, but a business can also die of indigestion. And although I would say our business wasn't dying, it was certainly suffering from significant indigestion. And there was a, uh, my father, my uncle were competitors. My, my father had to buy my uncle out. They didn't get along. My uncle started a competitive business called Mr. Donut. I mean, you can just imagine the dinner conversations around around that. Thanksgiving, well, Thanksgiving was incredible. <laughs> the donut boards, and and they were in, intense. So one of the one of the issues in a family business is that as you pass the baton from one generation to another, oftentimes change is required because everything is changing constantly. This is about sure. disruption, and boy, we yeah. face disruption. And sometimes in our case, we had to change the strategy, change the organization even change the name of the company itself from Universal Food System to Dunkin' Donuts. That creates some issues. My dad, eighth grade educated, always wanted to be a millionaire, lived through the depression, lived through things I've never had to live through as a kid, had a whole different kind of life, and he always wanted to cash in. So one of the things I had to do is fight Mr. Donut with my left hand and sort of hold my hand with my right in terms of keeping the company uh, private and before I knew it, I was in front of different people. Uh, uh, the company, he, he, well, I was my second year of business school. He tried to sell the company, couldn't. And uh, for a million dollars after taxes, which is what his dream was. But within three or four years, as the company did so much better, I was sitting in front of Nate Cummings uh, and the Waldorf Towers in his apartment, a guy who owned cons Consolidated Foods. He just bought Sara Lee and he wanted to buy us for seven and a half million dollars. Well, you can also imagine that kind of conversation. Nate and my dad. So, Trust me with this. <laughs> and then the question is, when do you sell a business? Hmm. And I think that was- We got some lightning round questions. We've got some lightning round questions for you, too. All right, so here you go. I'll say that for later. Right, so <laughs> no, no, no. Continue, continue. Because someone wants to know the origin of the munchkin, but the, go, let's, let's hear your story first. <laughs> Basically, the book is broken into six areas, roughly each five years each. Some are seven, some are four. You know, there's the competition and the consumer keeps changing. Basically, as a leader, you're basically given a whole new set of circumstances, and that generally always requires a unique response to those. So we had different strategies in each era, organized differently, different concerns. I watched the industry go through different eras, dramatic eras. watched it go from operations to now digitization and technology. You know, the successful companies now today, the ones that are going to ride out the pandemic, are really technology companies. Sure. They really have massive technology. We could talk about that as well if you want. But that, you know, basically, it required lots and lots of change. And that's amazing. Oh, that's, this is a great story. Um, I'm getting a lot of questions about how the heck did the munchkins show up and wh wh where do these donut holes come from? <laughs> Who started that trend? They're still around. It's now 50 years later from the time that they were invented. Oh, I love the munchkins. That's what I get all the time. We had wage and price controls. We had uh, lost long gas lines because uh, uh, OPEC had just started and they were they were rationing gas. You had to get gas depending on the, your license plate odd and even days. And I mean, it, it was a, a dire time in the country and consumers were befuddled and things weren't going well. And in the midst of all of this, I get a phone call from our franchise owner in Hartford, Connecticut. And he says, you got to come down and see what Edna's done. Edna is his wife. And uh, he said, Edna, for years, I'll step back a second. We used to take the cuttings from the from the cake mixes and, yeah. and you cut the donut and it's a real <laughs> technique. And you take the centers and, we, and at Halloween, we put them in a fry later, fry them up and either uh, put powdered sugar or cinnamon or plain and put them in a little cellophane bag and they would hang on the on, on a little clip like <laughs> And, and we'd sell them for a while, and not particularly exciting. And he said, well, Edna Dunn, is, she's created a different kind of cutter. So you're not going to just pick up the centers. You're going to actually cut separate products. Each each hole that she makes is five donuts, one-fifth the calories, one-fifth. And what she did is she has put jellies in them, apple and, and lemon and blueberry, and, and she's done it with yeast donuts and cake donuts. Those are two basic mixes. And she's piled them high in the front showcase, and our business is up 20%. Well, for anybody in wow. retail, for anybody in retail wow. who realizes, you know, today's day and age, if you can do it, 
two, three percent, same stuff sales increase. That's yeah. Well, in those days, it, in. In. that was our standard back in those days. So for someone to say our business is up twenty percent, but that will get your attention. <laughs> so myself, the CEO of the company, a guy by the name Bob Camerson, the marketing guy, the next day get in our car and drive to Hartford, and sure enough, it's exactly <laughs> as he, he predicted. And there's Edna smiling like an angel. From heaven, she was the one who was going to save yes. the day in the awesome. midst of all of this crisis of the early 70s. And Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Say, what should we call this thing? And they said, well, maybe you call it Penny Poppers. And we sat for that for a couple of days. That's clever. Dunkin' Donuts, DD, Penny Poppers, PP. But in the middle of wage and price controls and in the middle of inflation, we'll never keep anything near pennies. And then the agency said, well, you know, every year around April, CBS uh, shows The Wizard of Oz, and my boys always loved that we would make a deal. Or we I mean, I could be a chapter in Wizard of Oz every April and, and showed it. And we thought that was a great idea. And someone said, well, just we'll go find out who owns the name, a company in Louisiana owned the name, didn't know what to do with it. So for a dollar a year, we leased the name. We, we got the rights to the name Munchkin. Yeah. Yeah. And that product then, that year, same store sales for the chain as a whole, we're up 12%. That's a historic high watermark. Those are our best years we've ever had. And now we're looking back 50 years later, it's still a treat. Kids love it. Families love it. Oh, absolutely. 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 I, I love munchkins. Absolutely. <laughs> I hopefully, get them all the time on the road. Ho hopefully Edna got employee of the month. That's her <laughs> <laughs> picture. Full page picture with Bob and their staff uh, in our annual report. I mean, they also won, you know, franchise uh, operators of the year. Oh, of course. That's amazing. Our president's Club. No, yeah, I forget that kind of contribution. It was made. A lot of contributions come from franchise owners. Sure, sure, sure. Robert, can you talk to us about uh, importance of brand recognition? Because, you know, you mentioned McDonald's, fried, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Dunkin'. I mean, these are just revered, incredibly known brands um, uh, amongst the top, in not just the food industry, just in general. So why is it important for entrepreneurs to you know, make sure that brand recognition stays a, tr a priority for them. I can I can talk to that, you know, well. Uh, brand, in my view, is nothing more than a shorthand for the consumer on the goods and services on offer. And what that does is it saves them an immense amount of time. Uh, so they don't have to page through, you know, lots and lots of options to decide what something stands for. If you have built trust and reliability in that product offering over time, that becomes the shorthand that saves them time. Nothing more valuable to a consumer than time. Let me tell you a little story about the value of a brand. Sometimes it's hard to measure. In our case, we happen to come across a set of circumstances that allow us to do that. In 1990, we bought a competitor, my uncle's old business, the one my father was competing against and pulling out his hair because we didn't know who was going to win the donut wars. Donut. donut. We bought Mr. Donut, 530 stores. We began to rebadge or rebrand those stores. Same owner, same location, generally the same products. The Mr. Sign came down for about $25,000. We rehabbed the store and it reopened as a Dunkin' store. Remember, same owner, same price, same product, same staff. Sales were up. And the markets where Dunkin' had strong brand awareness, like New England, the mid-Atlantic states, where everybody knew the brand, sales went up 40, I'll repeat that, 40%. Wow. In the mid-Atlantic. It's changing the brand. Like it's changing the name of the store, the color. $25,000. Same donuts. 40%. I mean, if you go to a restaurant, in those days, let's assume the average store was uh, doing, uh, you know, five or $600,000. You know, that, that that represented a quarter of a million dollars worth of sales. I mean, it was just astronomical. Wow. So and that shows you a little bit of the power of a brand, but it really is a way for people to save time. And there's no more precious asset that we have in the world than time. We don't make any more, but we all have a limited amount of it. And you got to put it to good use. And that's in my view, this is my opinion of what a brand does. That's amazing. Do you still uh, drink dunks? I just want to know if you're still a. Okay. Behind me. I'm in Martha's Vineyard, and and I, yeah, I start the day with an iced coffee. I have to buy mine and a, a ready-to-drink bottle that's sold in the supermarket because because we don't have any Dunkin' Donuts stores on fancy. <laughs> <laughs> so delicious. Or Baskin Robbins. So delicious. Or Baskin Robbins. 
<laughs> All there is on the island. That's amazing. So, real, real quick, I mean, the, that merger, right, brought Baskin Robbins into the fold as well, right? Uh, yeah, with the basically, uh, uh, in 1990, we sold our company to uh, Allied Alliance, soon to become Allied Demec, and they had owned Baskin Robbins for, I think, since the 70s. They bought it from United Fruit, which originally bought it from Herb Robbins. Butch Baskin had died years before. A, a California brand, great California brand, great brand, yep. and and. Uh, and basically, the thinking was that when they bought the company, if I was the entrepreneur, would leave the company, the Baskin people would be able to run Duncan. Well, it wasn't long before they saw that our management team and our way of doing things was a bit more advanced. And ultimately, they asked me if I wouldn't take over that brand as well. And, and happy to do it. It's a phenomenal brand worldwide and, and, and growing rapidly internationally. And they had incredibly great flavor capabilities. This mm-hmm. was people that brought yes. you and cream, Jamoke Almond. I mean, these people really- Rocky <laughs> Road. They were doing cold drip coffee back in 1991 when I got mm-hmm. you know, finding ways of exact extracting the very finest flavors. So we started uh, immediately, the first thing we did was introduce a beverage at Basque and they had never had one before called Cappuccino Blast. And it was a huge success. And that migrated to Duncan to become Culotta, utilizing the flavors and the flavors. And Culotta became overnight a $300 million piece of business for Duncan in the daytime afternoon business, which we hadn't been really strong at. You know, people have biorhythms throughout the day and they need pick-me-ups throughout the day. And that's our job is to bring them treats, to thrill them, to get them through the day. And this was the right thing at the, at the mid-afternoon break and and Plus, it was and they added togos which made a lot of sense too so you got you got all parts of the spectrum you got all parts of the demographics you got all the different time slots it's great so it's amazing so, yeah. i got i just got to tell you uh sir we, we've had we've had this is our 210th episode we've interviewed 643 executives and it is truly a privilege to interview you because uh i had a, we have a chance to meet uh, certainly for me i have a chance to meet someone who built a company and a set of products that my family uses every day. So it is really a privilege to meet you. And and just you're a legend. You're a legend, and your company is amazing. So God, I would just push super back. Congratulations. This, I mean, I'm not saying this because it's an appropriate or political thing to say. This was a team effort, franchise owners and executives. This complementarity of team is really the real deal. In my case, uh, that's where my best ideas, the best help. I fell off a log a couple of times. And I needed to be saved by my teammates, and and they were there to help me. And they're the ones who I will always be eternally grateful grateful to there both. Have the last them. word. And and Bob Rosenberg, former CEO of Dunkin' Donuts and author. Uh, check out the book, and of course, more importantly, he's uh, you can follow the Dunkin' Donuts hashtag. But more importantly, get the book on Amazon and grab yourself <laughs> grab yourself some Dunkin' Donuts. Thanks a lot. Thanks Great for being on the show. Really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Wow, Ray. Wow. I mean, you know, how often it's like more than a dozen lessons I learned today. What about you? <laughs> I mean, by the way, one of the most important lessons, and you found out in all three CEOs that were on the show today, humility, humility. You know, Robert built a multi-billion-dollar biggest brand market leader in his industry, and he, he, he you know, it's not me; it's my team. Uh, you know, that's what that's why you're a 35-year CEO. And you, you, you heard that through all three guests we had today. So lesson to all Definitely. Uh, budding entrepreneurs, you know, humility. Humility is important. Uh, next week, episode 211, Ray. <laughs> We're going to get to close to uh, 650 interviews. Uh, Amy Brown, CEO of Authentics, will be our, on our guest uh, on our show. Mark Esposito, co-founder, chief learning officer at Nexus Frontier Tech and an author. He's terrific on Twitter. He's a, he's a thought leader, uh, uh, true and true. And Jeremy Ray, help me with the last name. Uh, Gucci? Gush. Uh, C- I don't know. Gush. He's the trend, oh, yeah. hunter. trend <laughs> hunter. CEO uh, of Trend Hunter and also an author. So we have CEOs and authors that come on our show, and it's a privilege for you and I. Your closing remarks. I know you are less than 10 days away or about 10 days away. From the 10th year uh, anniversary of Constellation Connect Enterprise, the other nine years we've been at Half Moon Bay in, 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 at the Ritz celebrating uh, and learning from the best and brightest executives in the world. This year is the first time it's digital. You have an incredible packed 
set of speakers and an unbelievable digital experience that we're all going to appreciate. Uh, your closing thoughts and remarks. <laughs> you know, I learned a lot from these other CEOs. It's very hard to start businesses and it's also very hard to inspire others. And, and I mm -hmm. think what all three of these CEOs have done is done that as well with the humility that you talked about, Vala. I think that's so important. Um, I'm really looking forward to learning to our, from our customers uh, at our event, uh, Constellation Connected Enterprise. Uh, it is virtual, but we've done it in a way which has full networking, lots of immersive experiences. It's going to be fun. People are getting packages. You're going to start seeing on Twitter these interesting things that have been sent to them. And uh, more importantly, it's, it's, it's a chance to reflect, it's a chance to think. We don't have a lot of time to do that right now. And so, so right. hopefully people get to do that and spend some more time with the loved ones and, of course, you know, enjoy their weekend. So thanks a lot. You on your end? Anything, Vala? I'm looking forward to CCE, my friend. Uh, it's uh, my one of my favorite conferences in the world, and uh, I really look forward to, uh, as you said, learning. Uh, lifelong students. That's what you and I are. Awesome. Well, hey, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you so much, everyone. And uh, catch us 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, and sponsored by Robots and Pencils. Thank you, everybody. Bye, everyone.